not take it for granted, to take it seriously, to rightly divide it, to honor it, to value it, to give it a place in our lives that is not something we take as a notion, but something we apply to our heart, something that impacts the way that we live, the way that we think, and that our lives would be worthwhile because of what we learn, what we see in your word, that we would be able to honor you and glorify you. And help me this morning to only speak uh, your truth and your words and that any of my own uh, thoughts or shortcomings would not come through. And if they do, that they would be forgotten. And only the truth of your word uh, would go out from this place. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So, John chapter 17. One of the first things I notice when I'm asked to speak is how long the passage is. And sometimes we're given very large, hefty chunks of Scripture, and that can be kind of intimidating. And when I first saw John 17, and it only had 26 verses, I was encouraged. But the more I read it and the more I studied it, uh, the more I felt uh, more and more overwhelmed at the, the, the depth of this passage, and I was relieved to find a commentator that agreed with me, and he said, John 17 contains the easiest words and the deepest sense of any chapter in all the scriptures. Now, I don't know if that's completely true, if we could say of any chapter in all the scriptures, but indeed, uh, every verse of John 17 has uh, a a massive message within just that single verse. But what we're going to try and narrow in on are, are two Uh, specific ideas. This chapter is often called the intercessory prayer of the Lord Jesus. Um, As Jesus now approaches his death, uh, Brother Jamel uh, spoke in in chapters 15 and 16 and and pointed out that this was one of the last things that Jesus would say to his disciples uh, and that the, the importance of his words cannot be overlooked, that as his death approached, the last things he would choose to say to his followers... And now we are even even more towards that end. He has given his previous discourses, calling them uh, his followers to abide in him. And now we see this intercessory prayer where he prays directly to his heavenly father. Jesus will be praying for himself. He'll pray for his his disciples and he'll pray for all who would eventually come to believe in him. And the two things I want us to watch for as we study through this passage and look at these verses I want us to look for the ideas and the themes of glory and unity. Jesus, uh, for lack of a better word, um, I just came up with a better word. We'll say preoccupied. Uh, preoccupied with God's glory and with the unity of his believers. So let's begin reading verses 1 through 3. I'm going to be reading out of what was formerly called the Holman Christian Standard, uh, is now called the Christian Standard Bible, uh, verses 1 through 3 of John 17. Jesus spoke these things, uh, everything that he is, in, in chapters 15 and 16, this discourse that he's given to his disciples. He spoke these things, and he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. For you gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. 
Jesus Christ. Now, who could ask to be glorified other than the Lord Jesus, the one who who came uh, down from heaven, uh, absolutely God. Uh, the, the scriptures tell us that in, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. And he asks now that, that his heavenly father would glorify him uh, in these events that are about to transpire in his death and in his resurrection. But to what end? Why does Jesus seek this glorification? He says, so that the son may glorify you. And to what end? In verse uh, Two, so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. The glory of God. God does not need us to glorify him. He doesn't need any more glory. His glory was sufficient and perfect and complete. Why does God want us to glorify him? Is he, uh, is he narcissistic? Does he need affirmation? No. God wants us to glorify him so that not only will we fulfill the, the highest and most joyous deed that a human can complete, but so that we might point other people to come into his love and into his joy so that they may have eternal life as well. And he wants to grant this eternal life. It says to all that you have given him. So to all the people that God has given to Jesus. Uh, now, we, we could have a whole nother series of messages on this idea of election and and those who God have cho- has chosen. But for, for the purposes of, of today's uh, message and as we look through this scripture, uh, when we hear this reference of everyone that God has given Jesus, we understand that to be uh, those who would accept the Lord for salvation, right? Uh, we would call those people the elect, um, but for all we need to understand is that the Lord Jesus and God in his, his divine knowledge knows those who will come to him. But it still says in verse 2 that authority was given over all flesh, right? The Lord Jesus came to give eternal life, and that is his desire. But for those who reject the Lord Jesus and are not interested in the gift that he offers, he still has authority over them. Not to give eternal life, but to punish those who would reject that sacrifice and that gift that he has offered. Now, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one who you have sent, Jesus Christ. That verse is often uh, presented as um, this idea that eternal life, uh, even now as, as we, we, we finish up our, our time here on earth, is to uh, become as intimately acquainted with and to know God and to know Jesus Christ. And that's true. But a better, uh, perhaps a better rendering of that verse would be that eternal life is to know that you are the only true God and that this Jesus you have sent is the Christ. So this is, this is important that instead of simply knowing, uh, God as a God or as Jesus as a prophet, that we would know that the Heavenly Father that Jesus is now praying to is the one and only true God, and that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that He had promised throughout the Scriptures and throughout uh, many of these Old Testament prophets. Now, what comes out of that? What comes out of a true knowledge and understanding of who God is? It's that depth of relationship. It's that seeking out that intimacy, that obeying His commands and obeying His words. The more... Uh, our view of, of who God is and who Christ is uh, uh, aligns up with reality. 
the more we will be compelled to know him and the more we will be compelled to glorify him so that others can know him as well. Better than knowing a God or even the God without a mediator, right? We, we don't want to know uh, God without a mediator. I've heard it said that uh, for the Christian, heaven is the fullness of God and hell, for those who don't know the Lord, hell is the fullness of God without a mediator. Right? So we don't really, we don't want to take our sins and our guilt before the Lord. That's not the God we want to meet. But thankfully, He has given us Jesus, that mediator, that sacrifice that we'll read and learn more about so that we can stand before God in a right standing. Let's go on for uh, the next three verses here, starting in verse four. Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the men you gave me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, like I said before, uh, God and the Lord Jesus, uh, his glory was complete. Uh, It is not something that we are adding to him that he is missing. He has no deficit in glory. He had this glory in the presence of his father before the world existed. And yet, he prays that he would be glorified. Our work, our opportunity to glorify God, to point people to him, to uh, fix our own understanding, to become more and more right, to show people the love and desire that God has for us never ends. It's not that we add, but that work, that perfect glory that was preexistent before the world began, our opportunity to share that and spread that never ends. He had this glory before the world existed, and yet he asks that he would be glorified. And in the Father's presence... He says, now, Jesus is speaking of these these soon coming events of his death and his resurrection and his ascension up to heaven as though they are uh, such a sure thing that they are already come to pass. He speaks of, of soon coming events in the present. We'll see that a few times throughout this passage. And it says his work was completed. His work was completed. This this bringing of eternal life. Again, this sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, God had set up a system where priests would be able to sacrifice animals and their blood could be shed on behalf of a sinful people, right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All the sin that we have committed before God separates us from him. And so this system was put in place that as a symbol, the the priests could offer uh, an animal, a lamb or a bull, and, and show that the blood being shed uh, in repentance or, or rather in recognition of the sin that they committed. But now Jesus came, his blood to shed, so that, that that system of continually offering animals could be done away with. His work here uh, on the cross, his sacrifice, his blood being shed for all people was coming to its conclusion. It was to be completed so that eternal life could be offered to all men through belief in the sacrifice that he was making. And again, he says, glorify me. We know in verse one, he wants this glory so that more and more people could be pointed to his father. Now, he says 
in verse 6, I have revealed your name. To me, that sounds just like glory, right? Revealing the name of God. Um, in, in the person of Jesus, God's character, his nature, his desire is revealed, right? God coming down to earth in the person of Jesus so that God would be revealed. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. Um, and this, this revelation, this, um, this true revealing of who God is in Jesus is something that leads people, uh, or rather I should say, if your goal is to help people come to the Lord and know his word and keep his word, it won't happen without a true and honest representation of who God is. And that's what the Lord Jesus has done. He has revealed God's name. He has revealed his character and his person truthfully and honestly and with integrity. And the result is that people are then able to keep the word and honor that word. And that is something that we should absolutely strive to do. That rather than simply describe God in, in, in simple to understand or human terms that we would honor the scripture. Uh, we seek to, to make sense of the scripture so that people can come to know God. And the more we reveal the truth of who he is and the truth of his character, the more people will have uh, that, that truth imparted, that his word would not return void and that they might come to know the true God. Let's go to verse uh, seven now. Now they know that all things you have given to me are from you. Because the words that you gave me, I have given them. They have received them and have known for certain that I came for you. They have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Everything I have is yours, and everything you have is mine. And I have been glorified in them. Now I'm thinking, I'm remembering back to the, the time John the, uh, the John the Baptist, this great prophet of God came and, and he was preparing the way for, for Jesus to come into the world and he was preaching a baptism of repentance in the wilderness. And uh, Jesus was questioned, um, about his miracles and, and the, the, the things he was doing and people said, how are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And by what power are you doing this? And Jesus would say to them, you tell me about John the Baptist. What was his baptism from? Was it from men or was it from God or from heaven? And that they were afraid to answer. If they said that it was simply from men, they were afraid of the people that that had uh, followed John and had believed John. Because if they said uh, what John was doing was just of men, that the people would riot and they wouldn't uh, accept that answer from these religious leaders. But if they said... Uh, what he was doing was from heaven, then they would be admitting that John had come from God and was doing the work of God. And now here in verse uh, 7, they know that all things you have given me are from you, that everything I have said and taught and done is truly from God. This is an affirmation of who Jesus is and the, the, the God-given nature of his mission. This is a confirmation of who he is. To, for people to understand that there are, there are many people that believe in Jesus as a historical figure, but they do not believe that what he was doing and what he was presenting and, and saying was from God. For, for To believe that is to understand that Jesus truly was God and truly was the Messiah 
foretold. Now, there's also uh, a little, uh, we'll take a quick moment here for this encouragement, um, because I'm always encouraged by the shortcomings of disciples and believers in Scripture. When I hear um, that these uh, little glimpses of humanity that I can relate to. So now it says that the disciples, right, the, um, the men given to him from the world, or the people given to him from the world, um, they've kept your word, they received it, they believed it. Now, these same people that Jesus is describing as believers, he encounters in Mark chapter 16, after his resurrection. I'll find Mark, don't worry. And he says to them, so many people had been seeing Jesus after his death and resurrection. They'd spoken with Jesus and they were telling the disciples that he was risen from the dead. And when Jesus finally gets to the the remaining 11 disciples, um, 16 verse 14, he appeared to them as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who saw him after he had been resurrected. This is uh, encouraging that those who would be described as believers who had received and kept the word, that they would still have such struggle and doubt to understand that Jesus had been resurrected from the grave. And yet, these are the people that he describes as believing. Um, one had said that this was an encouragingly generous estimation of dimly burning wicks that were then tended into lights of the world. We are called to be a light. And what does it mean to be a light? This is to glorify God. And we're going to look a little more at that idea of reflecting God. And that is the, the way that we would be able to glorify Him. But these dimly burning wicks, this, this mustard seed of faith, this quick to doubt and quick to second guess, even to think of those uh, two followers of, of the Lord that walked on the road to Emmaus, that He would appear to them and they would say, uh, did you not hear that one came and we thought he was the Messiah, right? They missed it. They missed the truth of his, his necessary death and resurrection. And, and Jesus explains that to them and their hearts burn within them on, the, on that walk uh, to Emmaus. Now, I think this is where we start to um, introduce, he will be very clear about it in the coming verses, that he desires all who believe in him to be one, to be unified. And I think this is where we start to transition into that concept, that the glorifying of God and his glory is revealed in the unity of believers. He prays for them. So in verse 9, he begins to pray not only for himself, but now he is praying for his disciples those there with him that are hearing this this prayer, he is praying for them. I'm, I pray for them. He's not praying for the world, rather um, everyone at large, those who would reject him, or, and even at this point, not even for future believers, but right now, praying for those who are with him, who have believed him, because they are not only put into the care of the Lord Jesus, but from God. Verse 8, they have received the words that I gave them, known for certain that I came from you. When a group of people, particularly what we're looking at today is this this unity that exists within Christians, when they are able to gather around 
something greater than themselves, something far beyond themselves, a unity there begins that we don't see elsewhere in the world, right? Especially in today's world. Unity is not a word I would describe today's world with, right? But when the, the source of unity or the, the bonding factor comes from beyond, it comes from something greater than them, and it comes from truth, that is something the world will notice, and we'll look more at that. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world. Again, speaking of, of these soon coming events as present. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by your name that you have given me so that we are, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you have given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction or perdition, as some, some translations will say, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. So Jesus, in his earthly life, was protecting his followers. But now he prays as he is about to go to the cross, to death, to resurrection, and eventually to ascension. He now hands the care of these believers over to the Heavenly Father. We read before that they kept the word, but they must be kept by the Heavenly Father. Protect them by your name, he says, so that they may be one as we are one. Christian unity is supernatural. We'll get into that more. Um, it is the, the loudest declaration of God's glory. When Christians are unified, uh, when, when despite uh, differences in walks of life, uh, political beliefs, uh, any other thing that the world would typically see as divisive, when those things are set aside and, and believers come together, clinging to to the gospel and to truth, this is something the world notices. It's also interesting that in verse 12, he says, I guarded them, the ones that were given to him. Those that were given to him, he's guarding. And none of them is lost except the son of destruction, the son of perdition. Um, We understand this to be Judas, the one who betrayed the Lord Jesus and handed him over to be crucified. Now, a common, speaking of unity, a common dispute that breaks out among Christian groups is between uh, God's foreknowledge, his knowing of absolutely everything, and man's free will, man's choice. How does man have the opportunity to make a real choice if God knows everything? And this is something that Christians often uh, struggle with, but often also argue about, right? Which is a lack of unity that we often display when we disagree with our brothers and sisters. But here in this verse, the Lord Jesus prays and acknowledges God's foreknowledge. I was protecting the ones that you've given me. But he also acknowledges man's choice, except the son of destruction, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. Jesus sees this in perfect harmony. God's foreknowledge and yet man's choice, he, he doesn't see them as these conflicting ideas. He sees them in perfect harmony. And one day, we have that hope that we will have such a, a clear vision of, of the truths about God as well. Verse 13. He says, Now I am coming to you, 
And I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. In verse 13 there, he says, I speak these things in the world. And that reminds me of John eleven forty two, where uh, Lazarus is uh, to be resurrected from the dead. And Jesus prays before that. And he, uh, he admits, well, it's just a couple pages. I'll flip back so I don't mess it up. John eleven forty two, he says, I know that you always hear me praying to his father. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I say this so that they may believe that you sent me. So this is an important little phrase here. Um, I, I say these things, I speak these things in the world. So this audible prayer in front of the disciples and, and praise the Lord recorded for us was given for us to hear, which is important to bear in mind as we study it. It's not something that was merely eavesdropped. It is a lesson. It is something that is to be taught to us. And what does he say uh, after that idea of uh, speaking these things in the world, that my joy may be completed in them? Uh, the, the suffering that Christ was about to endure, the, the, the cross that he would have to suffer, the, the shame that would come upon him, he endured those things, the scripture says, for the joy that was set before him. His joy would be completed in, in, in his followers' faith and belief in him. That the suffering that he was going to, to bear on their behalf, right? The cross, the agony of the sacrifice that he was making. He, he bore that agony and he suffered all of that shame for the joy that was set before him. That, that his followers might come to know him and trust him and then share in a bit of that joy, right? Share in that glorious joy that the Lord has prepared for us through his death. And this joy, right? We've heard, maybe we haven't, uh, the difference between joy and happiness, right? Happiness is just simply circumstances, things that come and go in this life. People are often seeking happiness. A little more of this, a little more of that, maybe a little less of something, right? To make their lives a bit happier, And they, people will bond together to, to seek out happiness, right? Until maybe what makes them happy forks off in a different direction. And then people's unity just dissolves when they seek different things for, well, that might make you happy, but this will make me happy. So we part. But the joy of the Lord is an absolutely unchanging, solid rock that all Christians share. If you have grasped the reality of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for your sin and the the unshakable hope that you now have of an eternity sharing in that joy and sharing in uh, the light of his glory, circumstances matter far less. The things that happen to us, the things we gain aren't as exciting. The things we lose aren't as painful. The joy of the Lord is the strength of every true believer. And again, when believers gather around that most, that most tender bond of the gospel, the world notices. When, when things that should divide, and when I say should, I mean based on our human experience, the things that we see pull people apart. 
when those things do not affect the believers who are unified in joy, that brings glory to God. And people notice this. He says, I've given them your word. The world hated them because they are not of the world as I am not of the world. I had a commentary that said, how happy is the man if his consciousness or his awareness of not being of the world, right? We're in the world, uh, but those who have come to know Christ, they're no longer of the world. That is not their, uh, their home and their hope, right? So how happy is the man if his consciousness of not being of the world uh, or his consciousness of not being of the world quickens or, or encourages, stirs up his desire to help the world and glorify his Lord by bringing the Lord's uh, all-sufficiency into its emptiness. This is the happiness, the, the joy of the Christian. And because of that, it does not mix with the philosophy of the world. This is why the world would hate uh, the idea of the, the Lord's all-sufficiency and the Lord's glory. The, the Lord does not share glory, and the world doesn't like to share glory either. Right? The, the, the world has its ideas of what makes a person happy and, and I can do it myself and I'm, uh, I'm self-sufficient and I can make it through this because I'm strong. Right? Not because of, uh, there's nothing I can do. I trust in the Lord. That should be the Christian's perspective, right? Uh, absolute glory to God. Nothing I can do. Nothing in this world can bring me happiness. My joy is in the Lord. My strength is in the Lord. That philosophy is opposed to what the world believes and what the world teaches. And if our happiness is in the Lord, happiness is in the Lord, the world will have no uh, place for that philosophy. Verse 15, he says, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. This verse is very encouraging as well. Uh, Paul would say elsewhere in the scriptures that he desires to depart and be with Christ. Right. Uh, once you come to know the Lord and the more you you uh, get to know the Lord personally, the more excited you can become about being in his presence and leaving the pain of this world behind. But Jesus says, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So there's a few things we're going to look at very quickly here um, that bring about this idea of. Rather than escaping the world or escaping suffering, enduring through it is what will glorify God, right? We don't want to simply be removed as we one day will, right? That's our hope of, of the glory that we'll, we'll get to experience in heaven. But for the life that we're given, enduring through is what will bring glory to God. We, we, we ought not um, desire to, to depart yet while there is still more opportunity to glorify God. We're not looking for freedom from the work of glorifying God, but the strength to do it. I've heard it said, um, we don't pray for a, a lighter cross or a lighter burden, but a stronger back. We don't want, uh, yet, we're in, our goal is not to seek freedom from temptation, but the power to overcome it. Again, that the world may see the Christian's reliance on God. We don't seek yet a freedom from suffering, but rather a joy 
Right? Remember, the, the suffering is a circumstance that happens to us. It may take the world's happiness away, but it ought not take the Christian's joy away. So we don't seek a freedom from suffering yet, uh, but rather a joy in an abiding sense of the Father's love. That our, our union with God through Christ's sacrifice for our sins would allow us to navigate the suffering of this world with an unwavering joy. And not an absence from the world, but the grace to make the world better by our presence, by our reflecting God in the world. Not to abandon it, but to to change it through reflecting his glory. Verse 16, um, They are not of the world, as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Now, he just a moment ago said, uh, they are not of the world as I am not of the world. And he repeats this phrase here. He fixes this idea in their minds. Knowing who is overhearing them, uh, overhearing him, he repeats this idea that they are not in the world, that they may be encouraged and emboldened to suffer well through the things that they would have the remainder of their lives, that they would be further set apart. This idea of sanctifying, that the Lord Jesus is praying for them, sanctify them by your truth. Again, the, the, the setting here that Jesus is about to go and be crucified and buried, and now he knows that these disciples would have their doubts and their worries and their concerns and their heartbreak, thinking, oh, we thought he was the Christ, but now he's dead, so apparently not, or maybe not at least. So he prays that the, the truth would sanctify them and set them apart. And I think part of that truth that he is referring to is not simply the, the word that, that he revealed, the character and nature of God, but that they might understand the truth that was already given to them in the Old Testament, the truth of who the Messiah was, who Jesus would be, and that he had to come and suffer and die for sins. Now, Several times he has said that they are in the world, but not of it. And yet he says, I have sent them into the world. Now, if they're already in the world, how has he sent them into the world? They have been redeemed through their faith in the Lord Jesus. And now, while they are still in the world, they are have a new purpose, a new function in the world now, and it is to glorify God. It is to become united on a mission with fellow believers, uh, that, that commission from the Lord Jesus, that we would spread his glory to the world. We are in the world, not of it. Why are we still here? For the purpose now of glorifying God, of being unified in that mission to bring glory to God. Verse 19, this is a big one. This is a deep, deep verse. Just in the first three words, I sanctify myself. Some might say I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself for them so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. I mentioned briefly in the Old Testament system, there were priests, those who would go before God on behalf of of sinful man. And they could sanctify things. They could set things apart to be ready for sacrifice so that these uh, the lamb or the bull might be ready or, or prepared for sacrifice. This was the job of the priest. Jesus says, I sanctify myself, right? He is both the priest 
and the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the sins of all mankind. And he sanctifies himself. He sets himself apart in preparation for the sacrifice. Now, the sanctity of his spirit in us should be the thing that inspires our own sanctification. Now, sanctification is a big, fancy Christian word that um, we often understand to mean becoming more like Jesus and, and maybe even on its simplest in, insufficient but simple uh, to sin less, right? To stop living the way our old nature would have us to live and to be set apart, different, more prepared uh, to honor God, to glorify God, to be in his service. And, and there's many a lesson on God's sanctification of the Christian through our lives, this changing of the way we think and act that we would become more and more like Christ as we learn more and more about him and study him and trust in him but Christ is uh, perfectly sanctified. He is absolutely pure and set apart. And the scripture tells us that the spirit of Christ now lives in us, those who believe in the Lord Jesus. Our unity with him, that spirit of Christ dwelling in us. And, and even as, as uh, Paul would say, um, not us living, but Christ living in us ought to be the true means for our sanctification and our desire to be set apart is that this perfectly sanctified Christ already living in us, that we would be aware of, of that power and that presence in our life and that we would not resist it. The, 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 our shortcomings and our failures to be sanctified are all our own. The Lord has given us the, the perfectly sanctified spirit of Christ. We often fight against that and struggle against it. But that perfect, sanctified spirit of God, of Christ, dwells in us. Verse 20 now, he begins to pray for us. Us here in this room. For those that have believed in the Lord Jesus. He says, I pray not only for these, those immediately around me, my disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their message. Some translations will say uh, those who will believe or those which believe, but the idea is the same. That that those who would, the, the ripples of, of Christ's ministry and the disciples' ministry, the spreading of the gospel, he prays for those people. And that's us. For everyone in here that has accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sin, this verse, this is the Lord Jesus praying for us. And I believe that with his uh, unlimited bandwidth of his mind that we were on his mind. Specifically, each one of us in here was on the Lord's mind in this verse. Praying for those who believe in him through their message. What is his prayer now for this glorious future expansion of his church? Verse 21, May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. The unity of Christianity sparking belief, right? May they be one in us, so the world may believe that you sent me. 22, I have given them the glory you have given me. May they be one as we are one. I am in them, right? The Spirit of Christ in them. And you are in me. May they be made completely one. He's, he's really trying to drive this point home. Right? How many different ways can you say this? Different angles, different perspectives can you add this phrase of unity? May they be made completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. 
the glory of true unity, of, of Christians focused on the one thing that matters, which is Christ's atoning work, that matters most, I should say, brings glory to God and points people toward the truth of Christ. And he says, I have given them the glory you have given me. Now, of course, God is not uh, sharing uh, his glory with us in the sense that we have we are worthy of praise and glory. No, but we have a share in a reflection, a glimpse, the ability to, um, at a minimum, the, the honor and happiness of having the same measure or, or the same spirit that was in Christ, enriching us and, and, and making us more like him. Now, this is, I would call this close to being the, the summary of what I want to look at or think about today as we come to the end here. The goal of unity, the goal of Christian unity is glory, the glory of God. And the goal of God's glory is that more and more people would come into his love. Verse 23 again, I am in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them, the believers, as you have loved me. God's desire for glory, again, is not because he has bad days where he feels less glorious and needs us to glorify him. God's desire for glory is that more people would come into his love and more people would experience his love. The glory of God, who absolutely is the only one worthy of that glory, wants his glory to be seen by all. We'll even see this in the next um, verse here, verse 24. He said, Jesus says, Father, I desire those you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see my glory, which you have given me, because you loved me before the world's foundation. This was God's uh, and the Lord Jesus, right? Christ again. And a whole nother lesson we could pull out of John 17 is the proof of the deity of Christ with many of the, the phrases and, and words that he's using here. This co-eternal, right? What does that mean? Well, God existing before time, before the earth, before the world's foundation, uh, absolutely above and beyond time and space. And Christ says, um, you loved me before the world's foundation. Um, his the type of love and the type of glory that Christ had with God was one that puts him absolutely equal with God. And his desire for that glory is that uh, his, his believers and his followers would see it and be able to share in, in the joy and the love of that glory. In verse 25, he says, Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will make it known so the love you have loved me with may be in them and I in them. He says, I have made your name known and will make it known. Christ's continued declaration of who God is, not only through his his life of revealing the name of God, but through his coming death, through his coming resurrection, through the words that he would speak after his resurrection from the grave, right? He would continue to declare the glory of God. And and now, uh, through through us, through the, the, the church now, the believers that take up that mission with Christ, that we would continue the work that Jesus began. Uh, he, he goes away and sends a comforter. He sends the Holy Spirit to us uh, so that that spirit of Christ now living in us can continue that work 
of glorifying God. And again, the goal of unity being glory and the goal of glory being love, that God's love would expand and extend to all who would recognize their need for that sacrifice that Jesus made. I know very, uh, this, this came to my mind this morning, uh, a little bit of the story about John Wesley and George, uh, Whitefield, I believe it is. Um, I may get some of these details wrong because I didn't study this out. I just remembered bits and pieces of it this morning. So if any brother knows better, you can come correct me afterward. But John Wesley and George Whitefield, um, prominent, brilliant theologians 300 some years ago, had a lot of disagreements on some of their theologies. Big, heavy disagreements between, um, kind of like what we mentioned before, between God's election of mankind and, and mankind's free choice. And often what they are very well known for, John Wesley and George Whitefield, is this disagreement. This, this, and they, 300 years ago, the, most they could do was strongly worded letters. And they, there are lots of letters that they wrote back and forth to each other. Um, and you can see this very old English, strong worded, I won't say anger, but tension between them, right? To the world, they see a division. They see something that, that, that puts two people at odds. But George Whitefield uh, died. John Wesley was speaking, I believe he was speaking to an individual at the funeral of uh, Whitefield. And they asked John Wesley, uh, do you believe that Whitefield will be in heaven? Or do you believe you will see George Whitefield in heaven? And John Wesley said, no, because he will be so bright and so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away from it that I won't see him. Right? What a unity. And if you look into the letters that Wesley and Whitefield were writing to each other, uh, Whitefield would write to Wesley, uh, I see that you're going to, to preach this sermon about this message. Please don't do it for the sake of the church. You're going to mess up the peace of the church. So even their argument was about the unity of, of the church. They were, they were tied together. They were bound by something that was far more important than opinions or, 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 um, I won't say opinions because that's an important doctrine, but the, the absolute pivotal doctrine of Christ's sanctifying death for believers is the, the unity that they had. Now, what an amazing story to see two men at odds in their life and, and yet they both understood the, the, the unity that bound them together was the eternal hope that they had in the Lord Jesus. What a picture for the world to see that two people uh, absolutely bound in unity despite their differences. Now, for us as believers, do we strive for unity? Um, often, it's silly, we all do it. Uh, again, as believers here, you know, maybe we... we hear about someone getting married and say, oh, where do they go to church? And uh, it's a Methodist church, right? And ooh, like this and that. And oh, it's this kind of church. Oh, it's this kind of church. And all we start to think of are maybe this is just me. Maybe this isn't you. Um, oh, well, they believe this and this and this. And we don't believe that and this and that. Uh, I guess they're okay for the most part. But we find all these little things that divide us, right? Rather than uh, focusing on do they 
recognize that they are sinners, that Jesus is God, and that he died for their sins? If so, we can love each other with everything else. We can love each other with everything else. And is that our attitude towards other believers? And do we strive to glorify God? You know, we can even obey God with a wrong attitude, which I guess would not be obeying God then, right? Um, we, we can do things in front of other believers uh, snidely or with pride, right? That does not bring glory to God. Revealing his name, teaching the truth of his word accurately, being in peace and harmony and love with our fellow believers. These are the things that we ought to strive for to glorify God. But for those of us who have not yet come into that perfect unity with Christ, a lot of this sort of sounds funny or strange or um, this talks talk of unity and the glory of God and kind of in one ear out the other type of thing. Well, that um, should be alarming, right? If you have seen the glory of God, if you have seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have recognized the truth of what Christ said and your need for Christ, you will absolutely be compelled to glorify God and to 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 give your life over to him. Now, it's not a matter of uh, living the way God wants so that you can come to him, right? I think that's a lot of times what the world is afraid of. They don't want to hear about Christianity. I don't need your rules. I don't need you to tell me what to do. The, 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 the gospel is to recognize that you're a mess and come to the Lord and the Lord will work on you, right? You You can't, possibly clean your life up enough to come to the Lord. That's actually just a silly notion in general, right? Well, let me clean myself up a little bit before I come to the Lord. Not going to happen. Here today and often in our country at large, people hear a lot about God and Jesus in the Bible. Some of it's right, some of it's wrong. But what we saw here that Jesus was praying for with the disciples and with the the followers of his word, it was not that they only heard the word, right? He revealed it to them, but they received it. They believed it and they kept it. They recognized the truth of God and his gospel and they applied it to their hearts. They, They humbled themselves and came before him. Our sins separating us from God, God coming in the form of Christ, To pay for those sins, sins required death. He was that sacrificial lamb. He sanctified himself. He was the priest. He came, he died that death to to separate or or rather to to cleanse us of our sins, to give us his righteousness so that at death, um, uh, I don't see this necessarily in the scripture, but it's a fun question to think about. If God says, why should I let you into heaven? What's your answer possibly going to be? If it's anything other than, you shouldn't accept that you've promised through my faith in the Lord Jesus that I have righteousness. If it is absolutely anything other than that, if it is uh, because I, you're off to a bad start there, if, the, if you're saying I, right? Other than I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus. Because I did this or I didn't do that, these are not good answers. Hearing the word, even knowing who God is, is insufficient. 
receiving that word, recognizing your need and placing your belief in the word of God so that he can begin to sanctify you. So he can bring you into that that unity of believers, that joy, and that you will uh, now spend your life doing something worthwhile, right? Jesus came to the end of his life. We're done in just a minute now. Uh, Jesus came to the end of his life. He's about to be put on the cross, and all he's concerned with is the continued glorifying of his Father, right? Uh, when we come, if we have the opportunity to know that we're about to die, will we feel like our work is done? Will we, will be, will we be on our deathbed with nothing left to do but die? Or will we be filled with grief that, oh, I should have done this, I could have told this person, I could have done this. There's more glory I have, I have yet to bring. Or will we be satisfied with our, uh, finally, our opportunity then to depart and be with Christ? So believers, strive for that unity. Strive that every moment would glorify God and point more people toward Him. This was Jesus' final um, one of his last discourses, one of the last things his believers would hear. This was important. And if this doesn't ring true deep within you, that you would seek out that relationship and that sacrifice, that you could come in to that perfect love and that perfect unity that Jesus so desired for his followers. Let's go ahead and close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. Um, and I Again, pray that my inadequate, insufficient uh, scratchings through this passage would uh, leave some seed of truth in the minds of everyone here, that it would take root and all of the anything wrong would just fall away and that you would water that seed of truth, God. Uh, We thank you so much uh, for your word and for your spirit protecting the word, um, and we ask that it would... Again, take root, uh, encourage the believers and uh, anyone that needs to understand who you are, that you would begin to reveal that to them. We thank you so much again for your word and for your sacrifice through the Lord Jesus. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.